John chapter 4, starting again in verse 3. It says, He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy me. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? I'm going to just switch microphones, because that's terrible. Start in verse 11 again. Is that on? Yeah? The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that said thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this, 
came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for the, the word. Thank you for the record of this interaction that Christ had with this woman and uh, for the things that we can learn of how we can talk to people and how we can share the good news of the gospel with them the way that Jesus did with her. Uh, help us, Lord, to, to learn this. Help us to grow closer to you. And Lord, I pray that you would help me as I speak this morning to be clear and that the things I say would be true and right and helpful to those that are here, Lord. Just thank you for this time again in Christ's name. Amen. So, we've looked at different aspects of this over the last couple of weeks. And last week I ended giving a bit of an outline of how to present the gospel. And at camp, um, one of the devotionals that we've used, I think it was called Keys for Kids, at the back page of that devotional gave the ABCs of salvation. And it, it simplifies the gospel message to the point that a small child can understand it, but it gives enough depth that it gives the whole message that's necessary for salvation. And those, the ABCs is just admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and then choose to believe that and trust in that for your salvation. And it's as, as simple as that. But as we get into this, um, I'm going to look at how Jesus gave that message to this woman. And it's really, there's a, there's a way to do this that is very effective. Jesus was always very effective in the way that he dealt with people. And there's a way to do this that just turns people off. And I think we need to just be really careful in that, looking at the way Jesus dealt with people, the way Jesus presented that. Um, I've discovered in trying to talk to people, there's a lot of people out there that are not interested in what we have to say as Christians because they've seen a lot of negative and they've seen a lot of things that made them not interested because of the way that people present the gospel or what they perceive to be the gospel in any case. Just as we get going here, and this is kind of off the topic, but looking at this interaction and where it took place, Jesus showed up and he's sitting at a well and then the woman comes to draw water does that remind you of any other Bible stories by any chance <laughs> there are three other women in the Bible who met their husbands at a well <laughs> and when we look at the Old Testament stories we see Rebecca Isaac 
wasn't himself present, but the servant was there and met Rebecca at the well as she came to draw water. Rachel was drawing water when Jacob met her. And then Moses' wife Zipporah was also coming to draw water when he met her at the well. And so these are some amazing stories of these people and the relationships and the things that took place at a well. And there's some chance that some of that took place even possibly at this very well. You ever think about why did Jesus sit down at the well while the disciples went to get food? Couldn't he have gone with the disciples? Couldn't they have gone to an inn or some place in town to eat? He could have gone with the disciples and they could have found a place to eat, but he decided to sit alone by this well. Jesus could have drawn a crowd if he had gone into town and started to speak in the town. Anywhere that Jesus went, it seemed there was a crowd gathered around him. But he chose to stay alone and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with this woman. To me, that shows the importance of two things. Jesus did both of these things. He gathered crowds, and he spoke to crowds, and he preached sermons to these crowds of people. But he wasn't above having that one-on-one -on -one conversation with anybody at any time. And if he could be alone with a person, he would deal with that person on that personal level. I've, I've met preachers who we were at a, a conference kind of thing and there was a whole bunch of preachers and this guy was a great preacher but you try to go talk to him afterwards. You're sitting around the tables having meals and I went to try to have a conversation with him. And he was the coldest, most impersonal person I've ever met in my life. Not, like I, I never wanted to hear another sermon the guy preached after I actually met him in person. <laughs> That's not how it should be. We need both, we need that personal interaction we need the group interaction as well and so my point more is yes it's important to gather to come and fellowship together and hear God's word preached but it's important for each one of us to do the ministering to individuals because not all of that can happen at this level it needs to be at a one-on-one -on -one level we need to all be out there reaching people in the exact way that Jesus is doing here. And that's why I want to talk about how he did that to help us to think about that, to think about how to hone our, our skills, if you want to put it that way, to, to adjust our attitude in the way that we approach people, the way that we present Christ. mentioned before, Jesus starts the conversation 
with the most practical thing you could possibly start a conversation with. Can you get me a drink of water? <laughs> I'm thirsty. I'm tired. And it's just pure, worldly, physical, earthly. It's just a basic physical need. A glass of water. He could have started this conversation with absolutely anything. And I've, I'm terrible at starting conversations. We've been talking with our kids um, about how to have a conversation with people that doesn't involve me just talking about myself the whole time. And we're telling them a friend of mine out west, and we, it was me and uh, this couple, and then her family. And so me and the couple didn't know the people whose house we were staying at. <laughs> we're having dinner at this house, and most of us didn't know who this couple was. And this friend starts having conversations, and I said I couldn't remember where he got the initial startup, whether it was a picture on the wall or something. It was something about NASCAR. And he starts the conversation by, you know what, I don't know anything about NASCAR, but there's NASCAR, and then there's this other kind of racing. Well, what's the difference? Why do you like this over that? And you know what? That was the end of the need to try to start a conversation, because the guy is now talking about the thing that he really loves to talk about, and conversation just flows from that moment. Um, there's a, a friend, a pastor, that I'm friends on Facebook, and he'll post, um, occasionally, he'll just post something like that. Uh, it's a worldly, earthly example, a story, a start of a conversation. And he does exactly what Jesus does, is uses that as a, a way to turn the, th the conversation toward the gospel. And I'm just going to give, an, I printed out one example. I went back a couple months and, and found this one. This is cortisol. And this is exactly how his post starts. <laughs> cortisol. It says, good day, ladies and gentlemen. Lots going on, eh? Stressful times indeed. Cortisol is known as the stress hormone and is used during trying times of emotional upheaval. The bear looking at you as breakfast, having to work atop a 100-foot tower, the government announcing yet another draconian measure. You know, pick your poison. And poison it is when it floods your system unchecked. Cortisol triggers a sympathetic nervous response, fight or flight, that increases your heart rate, blood pressure dilates your pupils, etc., etc. It gets you ready for action. It will also dump a bunch of sugar into your bloodstream for the same reason. But what if there's no banditos threatening your life? No impending tsunamis or polar bears ready to put you on the menu? You just heard that your spouse is sick or that a friend is having a rough time. On top of that, the bills keep right on coming. You don't need a rush of adrenaline for these tasks, but the cortisol doesn't know this, so it responds. Every strength athlete knows that the brain can be tricked into an adrenaline response. That's why you see some lifters, arm wrestles and such, hitting one another, yelling and inhaling ammonia. There is no hype to it, it's purely scientific. The casual, to the casual onlooker it looks insane, but it can mean the difference between making or missing the lift. Most athletes, however, save this for competitions. 
to prevent adrenal fatigue and emotional burnout. This brings us back to our topic at hand. You get stressed and you stay there in spite, in spite of being, in, sorry, in spite of there being no immediate physical danger. You take a constant cortisol bath, which results in fatigue, depression, anxiety, premature aging, and a rut that is incredibly hard to break out of. 365 times, once for every day of the year, the Bible says, fear not, or some similar phrase. Peter the Apostle said, casting all your care upon him, for, all, for he careth for you. In 1 Peter 5.7, the old saying is, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? He knows all about it. He often places people in stressful situations so they will consider him. Have you considered him? Are you saved? Jesus loved you enough to die for you, was buried and rose again to pay for your sins. If you'll turn to God with your heart and trust Jesus as your Savior, he will take you to heaven when you die. He will also be there to be a very present help in need in your physical life right now. Till next time. And that's, I don't know how, if he has a schedule for posting this stuff, but he took a very common thing, a very practical, worldly thing, and turned that instantly into a gospel message because he saw God in it. And he did, he, he'll do this with just about any topic, and he does this on a regular basis. That's exactly what Jesus did. He takes the ordinary and turns it into something extraordinary, right? He takes something earthly and turns it into something heavenly. He takes something physical and he turns it into something spiritual. And that's the way we can start a conversation. That's the way that we can turn any conversation into a spiritual conversation. That we can break the ice into that conversation and make it possible to present the gospel in a natural way because it's just a part of the conversation that we're already having. The guy by the name of Ray Comfort, I've mentioned him before, and when we started listening to him, uh, there was a show, a radio show that was called The Way of the Master. And it's pointing to Jesus. And, and this exact scenario that we're looking at is the way of the Master, the way that Jesus presented the gospel. And it starts with our sin. He starts with convicting us of sin. But he doesn't start with, you're a sinner, you're going to hell. It's not the way to start. He's not pointing at any particular sin or a group of sinners and just condemning them as a whole and telling them we're going to hell and you need to it's not what we do we start a conversation and we let the person convict themselves of their own sin and so ray comfort he likes to use the the ten commandments as his way of breaking into that and just in conversation he usually likes to start with you think you're a good person <laughs> And most people will say yes if they're being honest. They 
we like to think we're a good person. And he says, can we test that? And so by doing this, he's asking questions, pointing his finger in their face. He's asking them questions, getting them to answer these. And so if they're willing to test whether they're a good person, he'll then say, well, the Bible gives us ten commandments. Let's see how, we're, how well you can do with that. He says, have you ever told a lie? Well, you're lying if you say no to that question, of course, right? And so every one of us is guilty. And so I have to say, yes, I told a lie. What do you call somebody that tells a lie? A liar. <laughs> How many lies does it take to make you a liar? One. All right. So we're guilty right there on that first one. And then he'll move to a couple of the other commandments. You don't need ten commandments. Like, it doesn't matter which one of them we point to. We're going to be condemned as guilty. And so, this is how he starts this conversation. And then, what that does is, it forces the individual to look at themselves and to convict themselves of their own sin. This is God's law that we're talking about. And we've broken God's law. Jesus does this Maybe in a way that we can't with a stranger. But with your family, you could do exactly what Jesus does here. We know our families and our close friends well enough that we could do exactly what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't have to point to the Ten Commandments. He doesn't have to point to the law. All he does is says, go and call your husband. He knows where her sin is. We know where our family's major sins are, right? And he didn't point at the sin. He just says, go call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, I'm glad you said it like that. I'm glad you said I don't have a husband because the guy that you're with right now isn't your husband. And... So she's guilty of adultery. He's using one of the Ten Commandments and convicting her of this sin that she's living this life of sin at this point because she's with a guy and he's not her husband. What was her response to that? The way that he did it if he just called her an adulteress, if he just pointed his finger at her and called out her sin himself, what would her response be? It would be defense, right? She's going to back up and she's going to put up a wall and she's going to stop right there and that ends the conversation. But when he let her walk herself through that process, She, she didn't carry on the conversation about the husband thing. But she's intrigued now. She's ready to hear the next step. It's like you can see the conviction in her and she, the wheels are turning and there's something to what this guy is saying.
I wanted to go to, to 2 Samuel chapter 14. I'm, I'm not going to read it because it's, it's going to take too long and I'd like to get through the, <laughs> this whole thing today. But in 2 Samuel chapter 14, I encourage you to go read it. It's a story of David after Amnon had fallen in love with his brother's sister. So David had multiple wives and different sons and daughters. And so Amnon is one of David's sons and from one of his other wives, he loves this sister, Tamar. And he goes about things terribly, um, makes a mess of it, defiles his sister. And her brother, Absalom, finds out about it and he ends up killing Amnon as a result in defense of his sister. In the end, Absalom has to run away to avoid David's wrath against him for killing Amnon. And so it's been a couple of years at this point when we get to chapter 14. And we have Joab, who was the head of David's army, sees that this is a problem, that Absalom is gone and can't come back, and the people see the division in the family, and it's not good. And so Joab comes up with a solution, and he brings in this woman, and he gets this woman to go and present a scenario before David. And this happens to David multiple times in his life where a scenario is presented as a story about somebody else that is an identical story to his own life. And when David makes a judgment on this, it gets turned on him and says, you're the man. <laughs> you're the one who's doing this. You need to fix that. And David does. David responds when his sin gets pointed out to him in this way. I'm, I am going to turn there for the one verse. Second, Second Samuel 14, verse 20 says, This is the woman saying, It says, to, to fetch about this form of speech hath thy servant Joab done this thing. And my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of an angel of God, to know all things that are in the earth. And she's saying, Joab's wisdom in using this technique, rather than just going, facing David and pointing his finger in his face, telling him that he needs to deal with this thing, he comes up with this other way of doing it. He sends this woman in a way where David will make a judgment on a similar situation. And this woman afterwards sees the wisdom in Joab, that you've got the wisdom of God and the angels in the way that you did this, because... David responded. David reacted to this. He made the right judgment and he accepted it when it was pointed back at him because he had already made the judgment, not looking at himself. And so it's just, there's this way of dealing with people, a way of turning a situation. And, you know, that, that example of rather than pointing at the person's sin, maybe Talk to them about someone else. It doesn't have to be a real person. 
and get them to make a judgment on the situation that somebody else is in and what should they do? And then you say, you're, you are that person, you're in that situation. And here's the, you know, here's the adjusted details. And people will accept that much more readily than if you just got your finger in their face pointing at their sin. And so we need to be careful of how we present a person's sin to them. But there is no gospel without a person being convicted of their sin. There is no good news. If I think that I can achieve salvation on my own, if I can think, if I can go through my life thinking that I'm a good person and that I'll be okay, that God's going to forgive me of anything and that my good outweighs my bad and anything like that, there is no hope for me as long as I think that I am good enough. I have to get to a point realizing that my sin condemns me, that God cannot allow me into his presence as long as I have any sin in my life, any sin at all. He says, if you commit one sin, you break one law, you're guilty of the whole thing. And so we have to get the person convicted of their sin, put them in a hopeless situation that there is nothing I can do to achieve salvation for myself. I cannot work my way into heaven in any way at all. There's nothing I can do to get myself there. We're back in John 4, and you look at verse 20 to 24. It says, Our Father's worship, this is the woman right after this. She says, I perceive that you're a prophet. You know, he looked into her life and she recognizes that he can't know this unless God tells him this. And so she carries on the conversation. She wants to carry this further because there's some issues that she knows need to be dealt with. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship. And Jesus answers, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. She's all concerned. The people were concerned with the location. Uh, as I was looking at this, I was like, yeah, people today are concerned about the location, right? We're not gathering in the pews. <laughs> and that's a problem to some people. But we need, Jesus says, it doesn't matter. The building isn't the thing that we're worshiping. There's no significance to the building. It's just a convenient place to gather. It's, it doesn't matter where we worship. Malachi. I'll turn there. Malachi chapter 1. Should be easy to find. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 1 verse 11 says, For from the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. 
in every place incense shall be offered unto my name. God's going to be worshipped everywhere, anywhere. And then a matching verse to that is 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. That says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doting. I will therefore that men pray everywhere. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. We don't have to make a journey to Mecca to honor our God. We can worship God wherever we are. Wherever we can gather together, we can worship God in that spot. It doesn't matter where we gather or how we gather. It doesn't matter what the building looks like. We went to church. Uh, Dave, you've been to Grace Church in town, and it's an old uh, Greek Orthodox church. Big, beautiful church, nice roof things, and it's got this beautiful brass chandelier that hangs right in the middle of the church. And in general, there is a, a circle underneath that thing where there is nobody sitting in those pews, because if that thing comes down, <laughs> you're in trouble. But it's beautiful. It's incredibly beautiful. There's only two of that chandelier in the whole world. You go to a Catholic church. Um, some of the guys from camp had been to this trip to, to Italy and Rome, and they were these Catholic places over in Rome, and the gold and the artwork and the, just the beauty of these buildings does nothing, means nothing. You're absolutely no closer to God when you're sitting in those places, those beautiful, great big cathedrals, than you are sitting in a cow field. As long as you've opened up your Bible and you're actually worshiping God, learning of who God is, the, the place means nothing. There's no value in our location in the building. And that's what Jesus points her to, is the hour cometh when she, you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus turns her attention away from the where and the how to the who. And the who is what's important. Who are we worshiping? Who are we learning about? And it's got to be the God of the Bible. It's, and he says, you, you worship what you, you know not what. They've mixed up the heathen gods with the God of the Bible. and They've confused what the truth is. And so, you know, Jesus spends a lot of time when he's dealing with the Jewish religious leaders correcting their doctrines and yet to this woman he says you worship you know not what we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews he's saying the Jews at least know who it is that they need to worship he's very critical of the Jews to their faces in dealing with the problems that they had but to this woman he says you need that God that is the God that you need to be worshiping not these other gods. We need to be very particular on who that God is. And Jesus says, salvation is of the Jews. Acts chapter 13 and 
there's lots of possible verses I could have turned to that say similar things. Romans is, is full of these verses. But Acts 13, verse 36. Sorry, 26. It says, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. The children of the stock of Abraham. It's like the Jews. To you is the word of this salvation sent. Jesus was a Jew. Salvation came from the Jews, and it was first presented to the Jews. That is where our salvation comes from, is from the Jews. And so Jesus was very clear about that. And when he says that to her, I find it interesting that she automatically knows what the next thing to ask is. Verse 25 in John 4 says, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. She knows that she needs to look to the Messiah. She knows enough scripture. How many people in Canada or around most of the world, you guys might be a little different in, the, in some of the tribes that wouldn't have heard of who Jesus is, but there's a, a rare person that we would talk to on a day-to-day -day basis in Canada that doesn't know the name of Jesus. Most of them use it as a swear word, right? And so when we start talking about salvation and sin, those people, if they're ready and actually interested in salvation, they know that the next question is about Jesus. <laughs> they can lead that conversation. And I've had that conversation with people as I've been trying to lead them through the gospel. They know exactly where I'm going. They actually know the gospel message. They just haven't been able to put it together in their own mind. She knows the Messiah is who she needs to look to next. Once I get the right God, the God of the Bible, Jesus is the next step in who it is. We covered A with convicting them of their sin, and B is this section, believe. I need to believe in one God the God of the Bible, the one true God, as, it's, as he is described in the Bible. And the second part of the believing is, I need to believe in Jesus and who he is, the Messiah. So the woman, she says, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. And when he is come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And he just adds, like, you know that you're, you know, obviously she, she's putting this together. She knows he's a prophet. She's putting the pieces together. And she sees, and she doesn't argue with him. She doesn't, there's nothing else takes place here. It's like, I am him. And at that point, the disciples come back. And it says no man, nobody says anything at that moment. But she gets up and she leaves. Verse 28 says, The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. 
Is not this the Christ? Did she choose? <laughs> Did she believe and choose to apply that in her life? She obviously did because she went out and started telling others about him. And we can't force anybody. Like, I've had, I don't know how many conversations with people where you get to this point of they, they do the uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. They understand everything you've said. And they'll agree with it. Yeah, I believe that Jesus was God's son. Yeah, he, he lived a sinless life. Yeah, he was nailed to the cross to pay for our sins. But it, it kind of ends there. They haven't done that third step. They haven't chosen to apply that to their own life and to commit themselves to Christ, trusting him for their salvation. And that's that next step. They need to commit and trust him with their salvation, not just knowledge of these things in a general sense, but a committing of their life to it. And the evidence that we can see when a person has done that is when they go on home and go out into the community and they start telling others. There's a fruit that comes from a conversion. A conversion is there's been a change in who I am because of Christ. And now I need to tell others about that. And if you've never had a desire to tell others about that, you maybe need to look at whether you've really trusted that yourself. Because that is the key. That's the fruit, the evidence of our salvation is the need to share that with others. And she does that. And it's interesting, the way that she shares it was the same way that she understood who Messiah was. She says, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, and when he is come, he will tell us all things. And when she goes to tell others about who Jesus is, she says, come and see a man which told me all things ever I did. <laughs> he, he knows my heart. He knows all that I've ever done. It's only talked. We only see one little aspect of it. But to her, he knew everything. She knows that he is salvation. He is the Messiah. He is who she needed to trust in. That's who we need to put our trust in, in the same way that she has. We'll close in prayer. Lord, as we look at this interaction, the way that Jesus shows the woman her sin, the way that he points to the true God, the God of the Bible, and then she sees the need to understand the Messiah who Christ is. That is the gospel that we need to present, Lord, and it's done in a way that is appetizing, that is acceptable to the hearer. So, Lord, help us to make 
ourselves put in the effort to make that message appealing to the person that we're speaking to, that they would be able to receive it and not just put up a barrier and stop listening as soon as we start to talk, Lord. Help us to learn this. Help us to do this well. And help us to have a desire to share that with our friends and family and co-workers and anybody that we have the opportunity to share it with, Lord. We just ask this and commit it to you in Christ's name. Turn to 257.